Thank you so much, Dean. Um, I'd really like to hear more uh, from others in the congregation over the coming weeks. And, you know, we don't know for sure how long we're going to be meeting this way, but um, if you would like to uh, share a testimony of Thanksgiving or uh, just participate in some way uh, through video in one of our live streams, uh, connect with me, let me know, because, uh, you know, the church is, our church is much bigger, of course, than just me, Steve, Betty, and Keith, and Caleb, and uh, we really uh, want to reflect that in our live stream as well. So, All right, uh, Revelation chapter 16. Last week, uh, the message title was Thinking About Wrath. And uh, this week, whether we like it or not, we're still on the subject of God's wrath. Uh, chapter 15 introduced us to something called the seven bowls of God's wrath, and now chapter 16 gives us uh, some disturbing details about those seven bowls. I was uh, reflecting more this week on the whole idea of God's wrath, and it occurred to me that for a lot of my life, I've thought of God's wrath um, as the moment when he loses control. Or, to put it figuratively, the moment when God comes into the kitchen and starts breaking all the plates. And uh, I probably thought this unconsciously for a long time. But I eventually realized that that was what was going on in my head. And I realized that is not an accurate or helpful way of thinking about God's wrath. It's not accurate or helpful for at least two reasons. One... Because God never loses control of himself. Uh, in our anger, we have these outbursts where um, we do damage and we can't control ourselves. But God's not like that. Okay? God, God's wrath is always measured. It's wise. It's thoughtful. It's not uncontrolled. It's not like the Hulk going crazy. Um, and the second reason that this understanding of God's wrath is not accurate, this plate-smashing picture, is because the plate-smashing picture is all about destruction. And the truth is that God's wrath is far more about construction than destruction. Any destruction that takes place in the outpouring of God's wrath is ultimately for the purpose of constructing the world the way God has always wanted it to be. Um, maybe a, a, an effective analogy would be chemotherapy. Right? With chemotherapy, you are seeking to destroy the cancer. Um, but the purpose, ultimately, is not just the destruction of the cancer. It is the, the health of the individual, the life of the individual who's being treated. Right? And so think about it this way. The world has a cancer. It's the cancer of sin, and it manifests itself in all kinds of ugly ways through the spirit of empire and death and, and uh, evil. And God, God's wrath is an effective chemotherapy. It's not pleasant in the moment, um, but it targets that cancer so that God's intended world can be constructed. So I think that's a much better analogy for God's wrath than the, you know, smashing plates in the kitchen image that maybe a lot of us have. So keep that in mind, okay, because this chapter is going to be pretty heavy description of, of God's wrath. Chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, 
Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent. ...of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates... ...and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast... ...and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs... ...and they go out to the kings of the whole world... ...to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty... Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away from the mountains, could not, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague of hail was so terrible. All right, very scary stuff. Now, I know that what we just read, it raises a whole lot of questions. I just want to be honest that I am not going to be able to answer all those questions without going for hours, and, you know, I don't, I don't know if any of us, of us has the attention span for that. And even if I could go for hours, I don't know if I could uh, actually answer all the questions. Um, but I want to start with a reminder, this is something that I've said many times throughout this series, it's so important to remember, which is that Revelation is a series of highly symbolic visions. Highly symbolic visions. Visions reveal truth, but they're not the same thing as watching a video recording of the future. Okay, keep that in mind. These visions are meant to reveal truth to us, uh, and we have to be careful to respect the genre and the style in which they are written. Uh, they, they are very symbolic, they're very dreamlike. 
As an example of this, okay, let me remind you, because it's been a while, that this is not the first set of seven judgments. Before the seven bowls, we had the seven trumpet judgments, and before the seven trumpet judgments, we had the seven seals. And you might remember that when the sixth seal was opened, so way back earlier in the book, sixth seal is opened, and total chaos takes place. It says, uh, the sun turned black, the moon turned red, the stars in the sky fell to earth, every mountain and island was removed from its place. Total chaos. Uh, and if that actually did happen, where even just one star fell into the earth, everybody's going to be dead, right? If that literally took place. I mean, you're not going to even have an opportunity for those seven trumpets and seven bowls to happen um, because that is just such a dramatic judgment on the earth. So, we've got to be careful about taking this too literally because when we do, it starts to break down. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make much sense. So what about a more symbolic meaning? Well, this kind of language, this language of stars falling from the sky, the moon turning to blood, the sun turning dark, this kind of language was used in certain kinds of writing to describe periods of political, economic, and social upheaval. Okay, times when society starts to break down and fall apart. Uh, I bet that if John were alive on September 11th, 2001, and he wrote about it, he would probably describe it as a day when the stars fell to earth and the moon turned to blood and the sun turned black. Uh, because that was the kind of language that was used to describe history-making, uh, earth-shattering, terrifying events. So all that to say, okay, we need to be careful when reading Revelation. You know, often we have this idea that the best way to respect the scriptures is to interpret them as literally as possible. But whether or not that's respectful depends on the style of the writing. You know, if I said, it's raining cats and dogs outside, would it be respectful to me to assume that I literally mean that it's raining cats and dogs outside. No, what would be respectful would be to recognize that in the culture that I come from, raining cats and dogs outside is an idiomatic expression that means it's raining really hard. Right? So what really respecting the scriptures looks like is going to depend on the style in which they're written okay, and understanding that. So interpreting the scriptures can be hard sometimes, especially with something like Revelation. So we've got to keep all that in mind. All right, so let's look again at what these bowls of wrath, uh, what happens when they're poured, right? We've got seven bowls of wrath. First one, festering sores on those who worship the beast. Second one, the sea, sea turns to blood and everything in it dies. Uh, three, all the rivers and sources of water turn to blood. Four, the sun's heat is increased, so it's really scorching. Uh, five, there's darkness. Uh, six, got some interesting specific details. The, the Euphrates River dries up, making the way for the kings from the east. Uh, these frog-like things appear, whatever that's about. And uh, number seven, something happens to the air. Now, first thing I want us to notice. These judgments are very, very similar to the judgments that were brought upon Egypt when the Egyptians were holding the Israelites in slavery. Uh, you might remember last week we talked about how 
Revelation alludes to the story of the Exodus. And it implies over and over again that this greater Exodus is coming. That the Exodus in the past was foreshadowing a greater Exodus in the future. And it is an Exodus that is being led by the Lamb, by Jesus. And so rather than taking these seven bowls of wrath as this very specific description of exactly what's going to happen in the future... What I think it should impress on us is that just as God freed and vindicated his people in the past and judged those who oppressed them, God in the future will also free and vindicate his people who are under oppression. Okay, that's, that's the heart, I believe, of what's being said here. The forces of godless empire will never triumph. Okay, it doesn't matter if they're Egyptian or Babylonian or Roman or whatever... They will not win. They will eventually come to ruin. Now, as I look at these judgments, I'm struck by something, which is that they're very ecological. Do you see that? Uh, Most of them have something to do with nature going awry. The sun's rays getting too hot, the water supply going bad, all the ocean life dying off. And what, what I think this is implying... Okay, is that there is a relationship between human sinfulness and nature becoming inhospitable. There is a relationship between human sinfulness and nature becoming inhospitable. As we give ourselves over entirely to our sinful impulses, there's something about that that makes earth less habitable. And that actually fits very well with what we were told way back in the first book of the Bible. In Genesis, in Genesis, when human beings are created, it says that we are created in God's image. Now, what does that mean? Well, I find it interesting that immediately after it says that we are made in God's image, God says, rule, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the land. So to be made in God's image is to be made to rule, which makes sense, right? Because God is the supreme ruler. And he has appointed human beings in his creation to function like second in command. Okay? Now, some people hear those words rule over and they take it as a mandate. Just do whatever you want to the rest of creation. You know, uh, cut down as many trees as the free market encourages you to cut down. Uh, kill as many animals as you want with no regulations, dump that toxic waste, um, produce as much carbon emissions as you want, because, hey, you have a mandate from God, rule, dominate. Okay, that's your right. But ruling over does not mean abuse. When God says ruling over, what he's basically saying is, you guys are like the kings and queens of creation. Second in command. But that doesn't mean you should be a bad king or a bad queen, right? If you were made in God's image, you're made to reflect his style of rule, and his style of of rule is loving and gracious and good, right? So ideally, ours should be as well. We shouldn't be uh, abusive rulers over the rest of creation. But for God to say rule over implies that as the kings and queens of creation, we have this remarkable capacity to either bless or curse the rest of creation. 
you know, that is the power that a king or queen has, right? A king or queen has more power than probably anybody else in the kingdom to bless or curse that kingdom. And so human beings have this unique capacity, more so than any other species, to bless or curse the environment around us. And we can see that. That's just apparent, right? If you're paying attention, that's the way it is. Now, I'm, I'm going to wade a little bit into controversial waters right now, so bear with me. I am not sure why, but it seems to me that, at least when it comes to the world of American evangelicals, uh, we have gained a reputation for being people who don't believe in global warming or are unconcerned about environmental issues. Uh, we have a tendency either to believe that global warming isn't actually a thing that's happening or that human beings have no influence over the climate. And I just don't understand why that is. I don't get it. Now, if you disagree with me on this, look, it's not part of our statement of faith. That's okay. Um, but from a biblical perspective, I can't understand why someone would not think that we as human beings would have this unique capacity to influence the environment around us. Um, because like Genesis says, we're made in God's image, we're made to rule over the rest of creation, and that means that we have power to influence the rest of creation. And not only that, but as in our passage this morning, uh, the Bible suggests that our sinfulness will lead to ecological problems. And when you think about it, it's not hard to envision how that could be, how our sinfulness could lead to ecological problems. I mean, part of the spirit of empire that we've been talking about throughout this series is valuing money more than anything else, right? Having that as our supreme value and not letting anything else above that uh, guide us. And if profit is just your bottom line, and you're just focused on the short-term goals, you're not going to be that concerned about how your actions might affect the environment around you, right? Because that's not economically advantageous. So if we are just pursuing that bottom line, the profit, then we can do a lot of damage in the process, both to people and to the environment. Now, I've, I've noticed that one thing that often happens when someone like me starts talking about this subject is someone will say, well, we don't really need to show any concern about the environment. We don't need to worry about that because as Revelation shows us, it's just going to get worse. We're fighting a losing battle. But I would counter and say that's not the right attitude because if God really did make us to rule over the rest of creation, part of fulfilling our calling as his disciples is doing that well. It's stewarding the environment that he's given us care over in a way that honors him and honors his creation. Uh, keep in mind, right, Jesus called his disciples the salt of the earth. That is what we are. We talked about this last, last time in the summer. And this salt of the earth, that's a significant phrase because salt was used to preserve. It was put on meat to keep it from rotting. And so what Jesus is saying is, as my disciples, you are called to preserve my creation, to preserve it morally, to preserve it spiritually, and even to preserve it physically. 
right? To work to preserve the good things that God has made. So we're not being very salty when we just say, ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about God's creation. It's all going to burn anyway. Not only that, but showing concern for the environment is one way that we love our neighbors, too. Okay, this is not just about tree hugging. This is about people hugging, right? If the environment gets bad enough, it's not just the trees that are going to hurt, right? It's going to be every living being on the planet, as these uh, bowls of wrath remind us. Uh, if, if global warming gets bad enough, then people in impoverished areas in the hottest parts of the world are going to suffer famine. They're going to suffer displacement. It, it's going to be devastating for many, many people. So caring for the environment is one way that we also love our neighbors. All right. So let's shift gears now. Uh, I want to look at the sixth bowl. But before we do, I want us to notice that in the middle of this series of bowls, there's a little interlude. And something significant is said there. Uh, an angel says in verses 5 through 7, you are just in these judgments. And then we're told that a little while later, the altar responds, yes, Lord, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, what's the point of putting this in the middle of the bowls? Why is this here? Well, I think that John is anticipating a reaction that many of us probably have when we read about these kinds of judgments, which is, this is not fair. This is mean. God, how could you allow this? And that's why Revelation takes care to remind us what's going on is actually truly just. It's justice. And we're given a little explanation as to why in verse 6. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. So in this gross image, the, the, um, the people who have killed the martyrs are drinking the blood of the martyrs. I think that's why uh, all the sources of water turn to blood. Because it's like saying, now uh, the, what you would drink has turned into the blood of the people that you have killed. And the point here is that the evil they have committed is now boomeranging back on them. Uh, this is the way that God's wrath often works. God simply allows us to reap what we have sown. Uh, if we have done evil, what's more just than that, right? God just simply allowing that evil to come back on us. All right, let's move on to the sixth bowl. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, and there's so much in here to try to unpack. So I'm just going to focus on what I want to talk about the most. Uh, if you have more questions, uh, email me during the week. I'd be happy to engage with you about the parts that I didn't talk about. Um, but let's look at verse 13. John says he sees three impure spirits that look like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits, demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. So I don't know about you, but the thing that is most striking to me about this passage is the frogs. 
these big frogs. What, what is this all about? Well, we're, we're told very clearly, right, they're not actual frogs. Uh, they are impure spirits or demonic spirits. They're symbols. Why have they chosen frogs for the symbols? Um, I'm not sure. I think that frogs were generally considered to be grotesque and unclean. Sorry to any frog lovers out there. Um, but uh, that's, that's probably why they were chosen. And what I want us to notice is that these frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, the mouth of the false prophet, the mouths of the unholy trinity. Now, what does it mean that the frogs are coming out of the mouths? Well, what most commentators say, and I'm inclined to agree with them, is that the frogs represent the, the lies that they speak. They speak these lies, and, and the lies go out as propaganda, convincing people to um, idolize the empire, to worship the empire, to follow the spirit of empire, and to oppose God and the way of the lamb. And I just, I like this whole imagery because it reminds us that Satan works primarily by lying. By lying. And I like the imagery of these large, grotesque frogs as they're their lies uh, hopping around, moving throughout creation. Wherever people are unwilling to acknowledge the truth, especially truth that is obvious, that is a sign that the dragon is at work. That is the sign that his frogs are hopping nearby. Not long ago, I watched a miniseries about the explosion of the nuclear reactor at Chernobyl in the 1980s. Maybe you're familiar with that story. Uh, it was in the Soviet Union, and if you know about the Soviet Union, you know that that was an empire that used propaganda to try to uh, prop itself up and maintain itself. And many people in the Soviet Union had to live with this oppressive sense that truth was not allowed to be recognized if it didn't match what the government liked. And in Chernobyl, that led to a series of events that eventually created this terrible situation where a nuclear reactor exploded and it emitted deadly amounts of radiation. It was really a, a catastrophe. And one of the moments from that miniseries that stuck out to me the most was when the reactor blows up, the overseer does not want to acknowledge the obvious truth of what is happening. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that, of course, it makes him look bad. Uh, another is that it makes the Soviet Union look bad. And so he just goes into denial mode, even though that's putting all of the crew uh, at fatal risk. Uh, he just pretends the reactor has not exploded. And uh, there's this moment where somebody, he asks someone on the crew what the radiation reading is. And the man answers, 3.6 Rontgen. And then he starts to say, but that's as high as the meter goes. And before he's able to get that out, the overseer says, 3.6 Rontgen, not good, not terrible. Completely ignoring the point, okay? The meteor only goes up to that high. So you have no idea 
uh, how, how bad it actually is. And I, I believe later in the miniseries, there's this revelation that the radiation reading is something like 15,000 Ronkin. Now, that is an example of what it looks like when somebody willfully suppresses the truth. Someone willfully refusing to acknowledge what should be obvious. And throughout history, there have been times where whole societies um, become unwilling to acknowledge obvious truths. They, um, that sort of behavior, that willful suppression of truth, becomes normalized. Because people get used to living in a society where telling the truth is not rewarded or respected. Where telling the truth actually comes with consequences. And so people get used to living in lies. In fact, the tagline for the Chernobyl miniseries is, what is the cost of lies? What is the cost of lies? And the cost, according to the miniseries, is eventually things fall apart. Uh, one of the other lines in the series is, every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Basically, if you tell lies long enough, eventually reality says, you've got to pay up now. Things are going to break down. You, you, can't, you can't survive doing that forever. And in the case of Chernobyl, you know, paying up involved a nuclear reactor exploding and all the devastation from that. As followers of Christ, we should be striving to live in the light of reality. We should be the kind of people who refuse to participate in that kind of willful suppression of the truth. You know, those demonic frogs, they, they want to make us refuse to acknowledge any truths that we don't like. They want us to refuse to acknowledge any truths that, that humble us or embarrass us or that um, embarrass the empire that we're a part of. But we have to learn not to give in to their croaking. We have to learn to seek truth. Finally, uh, let's finish by looking briefly at that seventh bowl. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. Now, what does it mean that the bowl was poured out on the air? Well, in those days, there was this understanding that there's heaven and there's earth, and the air was the word you used for, like, the in-between area. And the air was thought of as the sphere of influence where uh, spirits operated to influence the earth. Um, so you might, you might remember that in Scripture there's a place where the Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. And, and that's appealing to this idea, okay, that the air is the space where the spirits operate. And so when the bowl of wrath is poured out on the air, that's signifying this judgment on the demonic spirits that work to influence the world. It's a cleansing of that, that sphere of influence. And then with that last bowl, there's this declaration, it is done, and there's this massive earthquake that splits the city, the great city. 
And what many commentators say, and I am inclined to agree, is that the great city uh, is Babylon, or a symbol of that spirit of empire that manifests itself in different ways uh, in different, different generations. Egypt, Babylon, Rome. And what this is saying uh, through the, the split that occurs through the earthquake is that those empires will collapse. Uh, the entire collapse, uh, they will entirely collapse their whole uh, social and political system. Now, when I read about this moment, I'm reminded of another time in scripture where there's an earthquake, where the ground shakes. Uh, it's in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's right after Jesus dies on the cross. It says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. Now, last week, we talked about the significance of the curtain and the temple tearing in half. But this week, I want us to notice that part about the earth shaking. That language is a way of saying the evil empire has collapsed. The whole evil system, inspired by the dragon and upheld by the beast, has been destroyed. Both in Revelation and in the Gospel of Matthew, that's what we're supposed to think when we hear about this earthquake. The evil empire has collapsed. The forces of darkness have been judged and they have been conquered. And what I want us to notice is that the place where the battle was really won was the cross. That's where the devil was defeated. That's where the dragon was slayed. That's where the beast was bested. And yeah, I know the devil is still at work. He's still causing trouble. But as we heard earlier in Revelation, he knows that his time is short. He knows that his defeat is certain because of what Jesus did on the cross. The earth shakes in Revelation because it shook at the cross. So, if we want victory over the forces of evil in the world, we should not be looking primarily to our own strength or our own power. We should not be looking primarily to politicians or the governments of this world. We should be looking to the cross. Jesus has conquered, and if we are trusting in him, we will share in his victory. So, let's fix our eyes on him. Let's pray. Lord, this is a tough, tough chapter. And I pray that you would help us to recognize that your wrath, as frightening as it is, it is ultimately for the purpose of Construction, not destruction. It's chemotherapy on cancer, on, uh, on creation, Lord. And uh, Father, I, I pray uh, that if we're, we're frightened as we read this, that you would help us to have the right reaction, Lord, to fix our eyes on Jesus, uh, the one who has conquered all evil systems, all forces of, of evil empire. He has triumphed. And, and through him, through you, we also can triumph. In Jesus' name, amen.